Excellent. Well, welcome, everyone. Um, if you're new and visiting, my name is Brendan. I'm uh, part of the core team that helps Dave lead this church. And brother, welcome back, Dave and Emma. Man, we have, um, we've missed you guys so much. I'm surprised, just like you are, that we're still here and <laughs> the church hasn't fallen to bits. <laughs> we made it. It's a miracle. Um, if you're new and visiting with us, you might not be aware we're in the middle of a series on John. And uh, we're so close to the end, I can almost smell it. It's awesome. And today uh, I'll be preaching on the resurrection. And I think resurrection's great. It's so countercultural. I mean, this week, just in the paper, I was uh, reading an article. It says in the Sydney Morning Herald, it's a bug's life, microbes to inherit the earth. And the whole premise was two billion years from now about how the sun's going to get bigger and hotter and microbes in caves and at the depths of the ocean are going to be the last living things left on earth. And you know what? The Bible paints a completely different picture about the future. And so I'm excited to be opening up and looking at God's word about, about the resurrection. Um, this is going to be a bit of a different message from normal. It's a, it's a big chunk of scripture and it's also it's a story. So rather than reading it first and then, and then uh, going back over it, I want to actually preach it like a story. So we're going to be going through bit by bit. But before I do that, why don't you... Uh, join with me uh, in praying and asking God for help. Lord God, this earth, this day, everything belongs to you and is all about your son Jesus. He is our King, Lord. and Lord, I... I often struggle to, to see him, struggle to, to trust his promises, Lord. And Lord, I, I pray for all of us as we look at your word, Lord. I pray you would do an amazing miracle that I can't do, that we can't do of ourselves, Lord, a miracle by your spirit. Lord, we ask for your help. Would you, by your spirit, May Christ big in our eyes, Lord. May we see him, our risen king. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, um, we'll get you to open them up to John 19 uh, from verse 31. That's John chapter 19, 31. But before I uh, begin reading, I just wanted to open up with a question. And my question is for us, what is the most common cause of death for under-25s in Australia? What is it? I mean, you might think skin cancer, car accidents, it's a violent crime, drug abuse. You know, if you thought any of those things, you would be wrong because the answer is suicide. It's suicide. You know... You know, for people from the age group of 15 through to 44, it's the number one killer. In 2011, in this country, 2,300 people committed suicide. That's six and a half every day. It's the 15th most common cause of death in this nation for any age group. Suicide. Why do I bring it up? Because suicide is the epitome of despair. 
It's someone who's despairing so much of their life that they think just to end it would be better than to carry on living. It's a picture of absolute despair. But I think sometimes in our lives we we don't just despair of the big things. Sometimes we find ourselves despairing of the little things as well. I mean, I remember when I was in high school, I, I just, I really, really, really wanted to be a doctor. And so I devoted myself to a crazy routine of study uh, in my final year leading up to HSC. I would get up at five o'clock in the morning and I would go for a run. I'd come back and I'd study. I'd go to school in lunch. I would study. I'd come home from school and I would study up until late at night, every night, because I was so, so determined to become a doctor. And I can remember sitting my first paper, the HSC paper, if anyone's recently done the high school certificate, you do your general English paper first, and I'd sat this paper, and I had these such crazy expectations in my head about how, what I expected of myself and how I was going to perform, that, that when I sat that paper, I was devastated. I felt like an absolute failure. And I can remember sitting at home, crying unconsolably, my parents trying to trying to console me, Brendan, it's going to be all right, it's going to be all right. And I was just like, I'm a failure, I've made a mess of it, I can't even face to do another paper. Absolutely despairing. And I don't know how you come here this morning. I mean, I mean, are you despairing? Do you find yourself prone to despair? I mean, do you despair about relationships? I mean, maybe you're a, maybe you're a, a single girl or guy and... And you, you, you consider your situation, you think, am I ever going to get married? Maybe God's lot for me is to be single. I, I, don't know if I, can, I, I don't know if I can face that. I don't know if I can walk through that. Maybe for you, it's thinking about the future. And you, you hear these things like the economic outlook is downcast and you hear words bandied about like recession and you see property prices and you lie awake at night just anxious about finances and you think, how can I face this? How can I, how can I bring up my children or live a life when, when money just seems and the future just seems so uncertain? And so you despair. Well, if you're someone who, like me, is at times prone to despair, I'm just really excited to bring God's word to bear because I think God's word has something very clear to say to us about despair. And this message I've entitled, The First Fruits, Jesus Christ, Our Living Hope. And I have two points. and They're not really points, they're more like movements in the story. The, the first is his burial and the second is his resurrection. And really, there's one encouragement that I have for us, and that this is my prayer that you would take from this. And, and that encouragement is do not despair. Jesus Christ is your living hope. Do not despair. Jesus Christ is your living hope. So if you have your Bibles, can you just open them up to John chapter 19, 31? And um, I'll begin to read just by way of context. The last two weeks we, we spent looking at Jesus' cries from the cross and now Jesus has breathed his last and given up his spirit. So read from verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, 
The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So it's the day of preparation for the Sabbath. It's the day before the Sabbath. And you see, in the Old Testament law, there is a teaching about bodies remaining hung overnight. I'll just read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22, and you can just hear briefly this law. It says, 22 says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so the Jews come and they say, can we just kill these guys quickly and get their bodies down because we don't want to defile the land? And it's ironic because the Jews have been plotting and committed murder by putting an innocent man on a cross and now they're concerned about the fine details of ceremonial law. Well, let's read on. Verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. So Jesus is crucified and there's criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And a couple of weeks ago we looked at how they were just probably just a few feet up. And, and I think sometimes we pass over what is just happening here and it is gruesome. I mean, I mean they break these men's legs, probably with iron mallets. They beat them until both the bones, the tibia and the fibula snap. And the legs are no longer, no longer able to uphold the body and the arms as the torso fall down, pull the chest back and the person asphyxiates because they can't get a breath in. I mean, this is a bloody, gruesome mess. This is, this is horrific. You can almost hear these men screaming as they beat their legs until the bones snap. And here comes this soldier and he looks at Jesus on the cross and they see he's already dead. So he grabs a spear and shoves it up on his left side. And Jesus probably had fluid around his lungs from the, just the terrible beating he'd suffered. And out pours water. And he shoves it further up into his heart and as it pierces his heart out pours blood. And there is no dispute, Jesus is dead. Well, let's keep reading. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth that you might believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him who they've pierced. And John narrates this scene as a witness. And John, as the witness, is looking back and he's saying, guys, I was there. I saw this with my own eyes. This really happened. Believe me. But John also, as the narrator, is looking back and has special insight, the insight of hindsight. And he looks back at what had happened and he sees the fulfilment of two different scriptures. Firstly, he sees the fulfilment of scripture that says no broken bones. And the only scriptures in, in the Bible that speak of no broken bones are scriptures that refer to the Passover and the Passover lamb. 
Exodus 12.46, Moses writes, he says, It shall be, that is the Passover lamb, eaten in one house. You shall not take away any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. And again, Moses says in Numbers 9.12, he says, They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. And so John is looking back with hindsight and saying, they didn't break any of his bones. Look, the Passover lamb, that lamb who, when, when Yahweh promised to his people that he was going to take his people out of Egypt with that tenth and final plague where he would kill every firstborn son of the Egyptians, he says, for my people, if you take a, a one-year-old lamb without blemish and you kill it, and put its blood above the posts. When the angel of death comes, he shall pass over your house. That lamb in your place. It's blood in your place. And John looks back and says, this is Jesus. He's the Passover lamb. He's the lamb of God. There's also a second scripture he sees. And that is that they shall look upon he who is pierced. And this comes from Zechariah 12.10. And this is the second oracle of Zechariah. It comes right at the end of the book. And I just want to read you the first verse of the oracle because the person speaking in this oracle is actually God himself, Yahweh. He says, Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. And then he writes in verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that, listen to this, when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. When they look on me, says Yahweh, On him who they have pierced, they shall mourn. And so John looks back and he says, not only lamb of God, but divine son who was pierced for us. But the thing is, this is with the benefit of hindsight. You know, the disciples didn't see this yet. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away the body. Joseph of Arimathea, he, he was probably a rich man, we learn from Matthew. He appears in all of the Gospels in this final scene. He was we learn from Mark, a member of the Sanhedrin, the governing council for Jewish affairs. And we also learn from Luke's gospel that that Joseph had not consented to the crucifixion at all. So when it says he was a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews, do not believe that this man was a wuss, not at all. He comes to Pilate and, and puts his life on the line that he might do the honour, a greatest honour that you can give to someone, to Jesus, by bearing him. Well, let's read on, verse 39. Nicodemus also, who had earlier 
come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close to hand, they lay Jesus there. So here we have a new character, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And he had earlier come to Jesus by night in John chapter 3 where Jesus teaches about being born again and tells Nicodemus, every man is born in the flesh but you must be born again. And you might be tempted to think also of Nicodemus that because he came by night that, that he was also a man who was very fearful, a bit of a wuss. But this is not necessarily the case at all. Because rabbis, of which, Jewish, uh, of which Jesus was a rabbi, used to teach by day. And the fact that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night may well be because, in fact, he respects Jesus and wants to find a quieter time in which to come and approach him. And we've got every reason to believe this because in John chapter 7, when Jesus stands up at the festival of the booths and says, if anyone thirsts, let him believe in me and out of his heart will flow living streams of water. When, when Jesus teaches that and then the, the Pharisees plot to kill him, it's actually Nicodemus who sticks up for him and says, whoever condemned a man without a trial. And they despise him for it and say, who are you? Are you a Galilean as well? Look and check scripture and see that no prophet ever came from Nazareth. So here we have Nicodemus and he brings to the burial over 30 kilos of myrrh and aloes. Myrrh is the yellow aromatic sap of this small uh, thorny tree. And this stuff is really expensive. You know, in the first century, there are a few times where myrrh was equal in weight, uh, price per unit weight to gold. Aloes, our best guess is that it's the quick-drying fragrant sap of aloe vera common thing that we would use. And so they come with this huge, lavish gift. The body would have probably been washed and dried and wrapped from head to toe in plain white linen with a shroud placed over the face. And Matthew tells us that Joseph had already prepared a tomb, probably for himself or for his family, just near a garden near Golgotha. And they take the body of Jesus and they put it in the tomb because it's the closest thing they can find and because it's just about to become the Sabbath. At this point, I just want to stop. And I want to ask an obvious question. And that is, where are the disciples? Where are the disciples? I mean, in none of the Gospels we hear anything of them at this point. You have a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin coming to perform the most precious, intimate, honouring ritual in all of Jewish tradition. And not a single member of the Twelve. No one. Well, the answer is, they are in absolute despair hiding in fear. And I think we sort of 
get a little glimpse of this from Luke's Gospel. So let me read to you from Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Luke writes, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognising him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God, all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Though these guys, they're not part of the inner 12 at all, we know that they're close. And verse 17, it says, they, look, they stood still looking sad. It literally says there that their faces were downcast. But verse 21, I think, is the clincher. It says, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, meaning, but he was not. They had completely lost hope. I mean, Judas has committed suicide. The twelve are in hiding. The rest are completely downcast. I mean, in, in John 20, chapter, chapter 20, verse 19, we learn that the disciples are in hiding and they lock the doors because of fear of the Jews. Well, why is this important? I think it's important because in the disciples we get a glimpse of ourselves. I mean, Jesus has spoken repeatedly about his death and resurrection. And John ten seventeen, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This, this charge I've received from my Father. In John 14, 19, he says, Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, and you also will live. In Mark 8, 31, Mark writes, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after that, rise three days later. You know, Jesus had promised repeatedly that he was going to die and he was going to rise. I mean, even the elders of the Jews believed it. And so they say, get a stone and put it in front of the tomb because this Jesus guy kept saying he was going to rise again and, and, and the disciples will steal the body and will have a disaster on their hands. Even, even, the, even the elders had heard him teach it. 
But do we see the the twelve approaching boldly, asking for the honour of caring for his body? No, we don't. In chapter 20, verse 9, it said, says, for they did not yet understand. And you can just imagine what, what the twelve were feeling. I mean, they'd spent three years following Jesus, following the wrong guy, thinking he was going to kill the Romans thinking he was going to free the people of God. And now he's dead. He's dead. And the shame, I mean, the shame of family, the shame of friends, the shame of everyone we've ever known, the shame of leaving work to follow this man who now is dead, living in fear, because now the Sanhedrin are after us. They are completely despondent, without any hope. And in many ways, just like us, disbelieving the promises of Christ and living in fear. Well, point two is resurrection. Read with me from chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb, both of them running. Together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So here we have Mary Magdalene uh, from the town of Magdala, which is about a 20 minute walk from Tiberias, uh, the west side of Lake Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. And so she's from the hometown or close to the hometown of Jesus. And in Luke 8, we learn that, that Jesus had healed Mary from demon possession of seven demons he had cast out of her. And she's with the other women who followed Jesus from Galilee all the way here to Jerusalem. And now she's with some other women who are bringing spices to anoint him. And still, by the way, none of the twelve are there. And the tomb is empty. So she runs all the way back and tells Simon, Peter and John. And I've spent this week kind of tossing up and toying with it in my mind and not really sure here because... uh, John is just portrayed so interestingly in this, in this chapter. I'm not really sure who, who he most closely resembles, whether it's Wilsey or Alex. Uh, because read this with me, verse 4, it says, But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, just so you know. <laughs> and then he says again in verse 8, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, just in case you were wondering, uh, went in and saw and believed. Anyway, um, it's really neat. That's one of the things I love about God's word is that it portrays like a whole picture with little things of character in the writers that you wouldn't do if you were just making it up. But let's keep reading. 20 verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, 
but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying there with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the other disciples went back to their homes. So they come in, they take a closer look and they see that the clothes are there and they're all folded up and, and they believe, that is they believe Mary's testimony that the body's been taken. So do they rejoice? You know, do they get up and say, yes, he's risen, just as he said. No, read, read with me verse 10. It says, then the disciples went back to their homes and locked the doors. I mean, they're not expecting anything. They're expecting absolutely nothing. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and, and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So it's this like amazing scene. You know, she comes to the tomb and you can almost see her tears. You know, the entrance is a bit lower down, and so she's like stooping to see in, and she sees these men dressed in white, but she's so distressed. She she doesn't even notice. She's so distraught. I mean, she'd been with Jesus all these years and she'd come to know him and love him. She'd sat at his feet as he taught. She'd been with him as he'd healed people, as he'd raised Lazarus from the dead. She'd been with him through all of it and come to know him and love him. And now her friend has been brutally murdered. And what's more than that? Now in like the final dishonour, they've taken his body probably for the purpose of publicly mocking him. And she's destroyed. Let's keep reading. Having said this, she turned around and saw it was Jesus standing and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. And she turns around, and I just love this scene, and you just see the tears in her face, and, and she still doesn't even know it's Jesus. She's still not expecting anything. She thinks it's just the gardener. And it's not until she hears those words in Greek, Mariam, and she turns, you can almost feel her joy as she's overwhelmed. She turns, she just runs, and she embraces him. 
Jesus, who she loves so much. Let's keep reading. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. I am ascending to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Jesus says to her, Look, Mary, don't cling to me, but take this message to my brothers, or you can read brothers and sisters. And the one message that Jesus wants to take to the disciples is this it's, I'm ascending to God, to the Father, to my Father, and your Father, to my God. And your God. And this is, this is really unique in all of John's Gospel. Jesus, Jesus never speaks this way throughout all of John's Gospel. You know, six times he's talked about my father, but never he's talked about your father, not at all. It's always been my father or the father, and that is it. But here, he doesn't just say my father and your father. He's emphatic. My father, your father. My God, your God. What's this about Jesus? What are you saying? Jesus is saying, what is mine is yours. As for me, so for you. When he died on that cross, by his blood, he purchases at such a cost a way for us to be reconciled to God. He purchases us free access to God through faith and trust in Jesus. Reconciliation to him so we're adopted as his sons and daughters. But even more than this, what he purchases by his death is a future hope for us. And Jesus is saying, My Father, your Father, my God, your God. What God has done for me, he will do likewise for you. It's awesome. His resurrection is a picture of what will happen to us. What will happen to me and what will happen to you. And I think there's a lot of common misconceptions about what happens to us after we die. And I I found one... um, in a book I was reading this week, actually, it's by uh, Maria Shriver in her book called What's Heaven. Maria Shriver is the former wife of the former governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And she wrote a book called What's Heaven. And it's a kid's book, but it's neat. Um, in it, it says, Heaven is somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. At night you can sit next to the stars, which are the brightest of anywhere in the universe. And if you're good throughout your life, then you get to go to heaven. When your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you up to heaven to be with him. And grandma is in a safe place with the stars, with God and the angels. She is watching us from up there. The thing I like about this quote is that it just sums up everything that our age believes about heaven. You know, spiritual, sappy, boring, and it's profoundly unbiblical. Not at all. 
And the Apostle Paul paints a completely different picture of what heaven's like. Because heaven is physical resurrection in a restored creation. And listen to this, 1 Corinthians 15.20. Paul writes, But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Jesus Christ, first fruits. First fruits are the first bit of a harvest that tell you what the rest of the crop is going to be like. The first fruits, it's the down payment of what's to come. It's the sign of the good things to come, first fruits. And Paul says, Jesus Christ, his resurrection is the first fruits of what is to come. You see, the Bible teaches that back in the very beginning, there was a garden. And in the garden, man and God walked together. And death did not reign. And God said to man, walk with me and eat of any of the fruits of any of the trees that you like. But just not this one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you eat of this tree, you will die. Surely you will die. But man just can't help himself and takes some of that tree and eats it. And as a result, death reigns. Cain and Abel, Adam's sons. Cain murders his brother Abel in cold blood. And God from heaven sees what has happened and says, What is this you've done? Your brother's blood cries from the earth. Death reigns. And by one generation later, Lamech says, if Cain's wrath was sevenfold, mine is seventy-sevenfold. Death is reigning. After kings and promised ones to come, a God who is merciful and unrelenting seeks to save people from death. And in the last time, he sends his precious son, Jesus Christ, who dies, and now death has been defeated. Christ's resurrection marks victory over death. And just imagine with me being there when Jesus was raised from the dead. Just, just imagine with me seeing him laying there. I see that body there. And his face, colourless. And his lips, blue. And his hands are cold to touch and the fingers have gone hard. He's dead. Completely dead. And just imagine with me the hands just beginning to warm and the colour just beginning to return to his face. Just imagine with me seeing his chest just begin to rise and fall. Rise and fall as he takes his first breaths, as his eyes open, and he's alive. He who once was dead, now alive. And that is 
a picture of what will happen to us. One day, friends, you will grow old and you'll be dead. You will die. But if you're trusting in Christ, death is not the end for you. It's not. Because of what he has done, you will live again. First fruits. Read with me Colossians 1.16. Just listen. For by him, Paul writes, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the first fruit from the dead, that in him everything might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, the cross is about so much more than just forgiveness of sins. Yes, it's about forgiveness of sins, but it's also about reconciliation of heaven and earth. It's about returning to that Garden of Eden where man walks with God, but even more. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of new creation. It's a picture of what will happen to you. This is our true hope. And you know, as I was preparing this message for today, I just, I just had a sense that there's people here this morning who are despairing and I, I don't know what it is you're despairing in I don't know whether it's some of the things we've talked about already whether it's a relationship or whether it's difficulty at work or what it is but just, I'm just really praying that God would help us to see how this hope completely changes everything even if you're not here despairing, I, I really believe the Lord wants to speak to you, encourage you as well, and prepare you for a future time where your situation will be more than you can handle and you will be tempted to despair. I believe the Lord wants to show you how this living hope we have changes everything. And there's two things, two main points that I want to address. There's so much you could say about this. But because of time, I just want to address two and the first is that we have hope for failing bodies. The resurrection gives us hope for failing bodies. I mean, one of the privileges I have at work is, is being able to serve people and be with people when they take their final breaths. And I can remember so clearly, just a few months ago, we had a woman who came into us under our care and, and I work as a, as a physio at St. Vincent's Private Hospital and this woman came in and she was about 50 years old and you could tell she was a beautiful woman um, with young kids, 50 years old. She came in for a routine operation because of a bit of cancer they'd found in, in her stomach. And she came in, had this operation, she went home. And about two months later, she came back to us. And it's like she's not the same woman anymore. It's like the life had been sucked from her face because the cancer had spread all throughout her body. And two weeks later, she was dead. 
And that, friends, is a picture of what will and is happening to us. We've got failing bodies. And one day, we will die. And we've got this culture that we live in that, even though it doesn't want to admit it, is deeply afraid of death. Really afraid. Cosmetics and plastic surgery and all these things. Newfangled diets and exercise and good things, but behind it, a fear of death. Afraid of dying. And I just wonder whether or not there's people here that find yourself anxious about your failing body. And maybe it's in the little things, you know, like like looking in the mirror and seeing another grey hair or, you know, finding a wrinkle or a, or a stretch mark or a, but maybe for you it's like a it's a it's something bigger. Maybe it's an aching joint or it's failing health or it's sickness and, and you and you find yourself anxious about your health and worried about what's going to come and tempted to despair. I'm just falling to bits, I'm not worth anything. Let me read you from 2 Corinthians 4.16. The Apostle Paul writes, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, that's our bodies, is destroyed, we have a building made from made by God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We have a living hope for failing bodies. One day, yes, you will grow old and you will die, but this is not the end for you. Because if you're trusting in Christ, one day you will rise. Well, secondly, I think the resurrection helps us to have perseverance in affliction. A living hope has helps us to find perseverance in affliction. I have this quote uh, next that I found this week in another book um, by a guy called Leo Tolstoy. He's a famous writer. He's not a Christian. And he writes this and I think it's quite powerful. He says, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man. A question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy. Isn't that powerful? Is there any meaning in my life that just me dying is not just going to wipe out? Yes. Yes, there, there is for those who trust in Christ. Friends, we have a living hope. You know, Paul, in his letter to Corinthians, his first letter, he dedicates a whole chapter to the resurrection of the dead. 
And after speaking through a whole chapter about this living hope that we have, he sums it up with what in his perspective, in his mind, is the greatest practical implication of Christ's resurrection from the dead. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. In the Lord, your labour is not in vain. What is the greatest implication of Christ rising from the dead for how we should live? The knowledge that nothing that we do in the Lord is in vain. The word is emptiness, meaninglessness, valuelessness. It's, it's purposelessness. It's not in vain. It's not in vain at all. Why is it not in vain? Because Christ is risen. He's there. He sees you. He sees everything that you do, whether it's acknowledged by people or not. He's there, he's present, he's risen. And one day you will face him, face to face your king, and you'll say, yes, my faithful servant, I've seen your life. I've seen how you've struggled. Come into this eternity that I've prepared for you. Your labour is never in vain in the Lord. I just wonder, are there people here that are just, you know, maybe, maybe you're struggling in your marriage. You've got a difficult marriage and it's hard for you guys. You, you're working through issues and, and you're getting counsel and you, you're tempted to wonder sometimes, you know, is it worth it? Is it worth all this hassle? Or maybe it's just like fatigue and tiredness and for you, like every day is a battle just to get out of bed. A struggle, and you just, it's like you're, you're trying to rouse up the energy, asking the Lord to help you, and just to get out of bed and face the morning. And you're tempted to wonder, is it worth it? Or maybe it's, it's work, and sometimes it just seems overwhelming. You've got difficult colleagues who treat you poorly, you've got a difficult job that you don't enjoy, you're trying to work to support a family and save for the future, and you're just tempted to think, is it worth it? Maybe I should just throw it all in. Or rest in this. You have a living hope. And because your king is risen and sees all you do, your struggles, your work, your labour in the Lord is never in vain. He's there with you. It's like living with Christ on view. We need, we need the Lord's help to be able to see it, I think. You know, I struggle with this so much. We need to be able to live with lives in which we see so clearly that he is risen, he is there, he is present. You know, I just wanted to kind of end here with just an illustration of, of how the Lord's been helping me in this. And um, I know what, this is kind of like an like almost like pathetic example, like such a small thing. And nothing compared to what a lot of you guys are walking through, I know. Um, but I just, I just want to encourage you about what he's been doing in my life. And, and I know many of you I've shared before about my work. I work as a physio and I'm so blessed to have this job. So don't hear me wrong. But just one example, the last couple of weeks, I, I've been working, you know, previously I was working in the plaster clinic putting casts on or actually helping someone else put casts on as they're kind of like their aid, their uh, plaster helper 
And um, I stuck up my hand two weeks ago to um, volunteer to, to put on a, a cast all by myself. And um, they said, yeah, that's fine, Brendan, no problems. We'll call you when the person's ready in the clinic out, outside of the hospital and, and we'll call you up. And so I was waiting all day and I get the page, my pager goes off. You feel so important at hospital when your pager goes off. Like, oh, yes, I'm wanted. Um, and then they drive you nuts after that. But, um, uh, so my pager goes off just about at lunchtime. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, no worries. And I turn up to put this plaster cast on. And um, there's this lady here who's waiting. It's actually a bit more of a complicated cast than normal. Great, my first one. And her husband's with her. And her husband is like particularly anxious and is being like quite aggressive with me and is clearly concerned for his wife but also not trusting me at all. And I'm trying to pretend like... I know what I'm doing because I've done lots of these before. Just didn't know that not by myself before. <laughs> and um, so I'm trying to instill confidence and, you know, and I'm um, putting this cast on and I get it done. I think, yeah, actually I nailed that. It's beautiful. I was really happy with the cast. And I went back to my lunchroom and everyone's there. And I sit down and finally, like, it's the end of lunch and I'm going to start having my lunch. And it's, that process is about 45 minutes. And uh, then the phone rings in the office and it's the surgeon's rooms. And uh, it's this surgeon who's, I've been putting a, a cast on his patient and says, oh, can you get Brendan to come over to my rooms? And I think, oh, okay, wonder what this is going to be about. Is he going to congratulate me on how good my cast was? And uh, I turn up in this guy's rooms and he's there and this lady and her husband are there as well. And he sits me down and says, Brendan, see this cast? I mean, it's a good cast. You've done a great job, but... I wanted about 15 mils longer of the big toe, so take it off and do it again. And anxious patient, husband, first time, 45-minute process. So I took them back to the room and cut the cast off and redid the cast and finished it. And I looked like an idiot, like I didn't know anything. Like I was like, this guy's got no idea what he's doing and... The thing that was different about that situation at work for me was just that throughout the whole thing, I just had this sense of the Lord's presence in it. I just real sense that my work, even though I look like a fool, it's not really about my work, it's about him. He's there, this is about serving him. That Christ is risen, he's with me, he's present. Ultimately, my work is not about my work, it's about serving and making much of him. And I just, I just really sense his presence with me and I don't say that to boast, I just it's like the Lord's work in my life and I just want to encourage you because the same Lord that's working in my life is working in your life as well and, and, and we, we just need to ask him for help. We need to ask him to help us to see the truth of the resurrection, to see our risen King, to see that we have a living hope because it changes everything. When we see he's there and he's risen and he loves us, it changes absolutely everything. I mean, my work is no longer about me. It's about him. It's the way I use my money. He's coming again. I mean, life is short. Christ is coming. Heaven is long. He's there. He's present. I mean, we, we, just, need to, we just need to ask him to help us to see the truth of the whole thing because our living hope changes everything. Absolutely everything. 
Because when he's there, when we, when we see him there, I mean, what can man do to us? We can face reviling, we can face shame, we can face difficult work situations, we can face all things through him who loved us and is with us. Well, in Jesus Christ's burial, we see the hopelessness and despair of the disciples. In his resurrection, we see the first fruits of new creation, our living hope. So friends, do not despair. Jesus Christ is your living hope. I'm going to pray in closing. Um, Before that, I just want to address some people that I believe might be with us that don't have Jesus Christ as their living hope simply just because you've never asked. And Jesus extends an offer to you. He says, if you come to me in faith asking for forgiveness for your sins, you are washed completely clean. He will adopt you as his son. You will one day not perish but live and be with him. And if that's you, there's nothing that I'd love to do more than just pray with you, not embarrass you, just pray with you. And so let me just invite you, if that's you, just come down the front um, after the service. We'd love to just chat with you and see if there's anything we can do to encourage you. But why don't you join with me in, in praying to close. Lord, um, gracious King, we want to thank you for your cross. Thank you for that amazing price you paid. Lord, thank you that through your cross, not only did you wash me completely clean, Lord, but you began your work of reconciling all things together. Lord, we have a living hope through Jesus Christ. I just pray for people here that, like me, are just prone at times to despair. Lord, I pray for anyone sitting here who's just aware that there's someone who sometimes despairs of all hope. Lord, oh Lord, would you just encourage them, Lord? Would you, would you just speak to them by your Spirit, Lord? May they know your nearness with them, Lord. May they know the depth of your love that took you to that cross, Lord. May they know, Lord, that, that despite their failings, despite their struggles, despite their just anxieties and difficulties, Lord, they have a living hope. A living hope that they will one day be face to face with their King. And that you, their King, will welcome them with open arms. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for us, Lord. Would you help us to live in light of this? May we never despair, Lord, but may we cling to our hope, Jesus Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen.